may be seated. So today is number six in our Desert Trees series, and the reading is from Second Kings, chapter 22. In the eighteenth year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that's been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that's delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Achbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that's written concerning us. So... Hilkiah the priest and Aikam and Achbor and Shaphan and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they talked with her, and she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me, and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord, Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. We skip a few verses, and in 23, verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. Skipping down to verse 24, Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, 
nor did any, any like him arise after him. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. This is the word of the Lord. And be with us, Father, by your spirit as we hear, in Jesus' good name. Amen. Throughout this series, I have suggested to you that modern life, life as we know it today, dehydrates Christian faith, but not necessarily as you might expect, not necessarily by direct attacks on what we believe. That actually can strengthen your faith. Not so much by direct attacks on us because we believe what we believe. That might actually wake us up in our faith. Rather, it dehydrates our faith by making it feel as if our faith is just mostly irrelevant to real life. Because as we all know, right, this is reinforced by just about every priority and practice of daily life here in North America in our time. We all know real life is finding happiness. Whatever does it for you, it might be God, it might be religion, but whatever does it for you, real life is about finding happiness however you get there. But what is often not noticed and discussed, I think, is that view of life, brothers and sisters, creates pressure. Have you ever noticed this? Does it ever strike you as odd that in a time that encourages young people more than ever in the history of humankind, go follow your heart and find happiness, and we'll just affirm everything along the way, and we live in a time of, we, m- most people today live more wealthy and s- frankly pampered lives than most royalty in history. Why are, why are young people so unhappy? Why are they feeling so much pressure? Well, you ever think about this? You're supposed to be happy. So guess what we want to know if you're not happy? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with your life? And you better do something about it, man, because you won't live forever. Get busy, figure it out, get happy. It creates pressure. And the crazy thing about this pressure is that pressure can increase the better your life is. I'm very grateful to Luke for putting me this week onto the work of Mike Martin on what he calls the paradoxes of happiness. Well, this is one of the paradoxes of happiness, that the more you have of what makes you happy, there's this weird diminishing return that the less it makes you happy. You ever notice this? Your kids finally get that entire pile of junk they've been wanting all year and 30 minutes later, they don't like it anymore. Like what is it about getting the stuff that makes you happy that the longer you've got it, the more you've got it, it seems like it makes you actually less happy. That's a paradox. But I think that pressure that I just described actually pales compared to the pressure that we experience as we try to square this constant quest for happiness with the bad things that we encounter in the world. It's one thing when good things put pressure on us. That's difficult, but you will find, I will even state this as kind of a thesis, (laughs) you can make your life about personal happiness only by suppressing what finally cannot be suppressed, and that is your moral sense. When you encounter bad things in the world, if you are honest, and if you care about goodness at all, What you will find over time is at some point you will run into this hard fact that you are not happy with yourself. 
and you are not happy with bad things in the world, and that's going to create pressure. This moral sense, I'm not happy with me. I'm not happy with stuff in the world. It creates pressure on this quest for happiness. You will, if you are human, eventually experience times in your life of guilt. You will experience shame. You will experience anger at the bad things. Because there is a hunger that is deeper than the hunger for happiness. We are hungry for happiness, but we are hunger, hungry even more deeply to know, I'll call it a hunger for righteousness. <laughs> it is a hunger to know that I and all things, in fact, are very good. That is a deep hunger of the human heart. I want to know that I am very good that the world around me is very good. I want to know that it can be said of me seriously, Ben Miller, you're very good. You should exist. You matter. You are as you were meant to be. I want to know that, and I want to know that is at least possible, even if I know no one can say that seriously now. And I want to know that about the world as well. I want to know that all of the badness, all of the evils, all of the injustices, I want to know they can be set right somehow. In fact, I want to know that they will be set right somehow. And I'm, go I mean, I'm going to struggle staying happy if that is not possible. And that brings us to a desert long ago. The story of a young king named Josiah. And I want to begin with Josiah's shock. Josiah's shock as we think about this struggle between being happy and moral sense. Josiah's shock. You know, of all the biblical characters, of all the people in the Bible, since I first read his story as a teenager, I have to say no one has ever stirred my soul like Josiah. I remember I was probably 14, 15 when I first read 2 Kings, and I was like, this dude is awesome. He steps onto the stage in a moment of just about unthinkable darkness. His grandfather's name was Manasseh. Do you know the first time we hear the name Manasseh in the Bible? Joseph named his firstborn son in Egypt Manasseh because you know what Manasseh means? It means I have forgotten. I have forgotten my trouble in the birth of this little boy. Well, Josiah's granddad's name was Manasseh, but he forgot in a different way. He forgot the Lord. Now, it, we, we could back up slightly. In the days of Manasseh's father, a king named Hezekiah, God's patience ran out with the northern kingdom of Israel. You remember the northern kingdom, the ten tribes who broke away from Solomon's son Rehoboam because he kind of flexed on them, as we talked about last week, and they decided they wanted out. So they broke off, and they created this northern kingdom, and they created separate worship centers with a couple of nice golden calves, you know, to be rivals to the Jerusalem temple. And they went on a, they, they never had a single good king in that northern kingdom. And after two long centuries of just unremitting idolatry, unremitting worship of false gods, and just disgusting immorality, by God's hand, that northern kingdom was crushed by this eastern superpower of Assyria. And that Assyrian war machine just about made it all the way inside of Jerusalem. It actually made it all the way to the gates of Jerusalem, and Hezekiah was king in those days in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he led in that time in those fearful conditions. He led a great spiritual reform of his kingdom in the south, but somehow that spiritual reform did not make it into Hezekiah's home. 
because his son Manasseh took the throne at 12 years of age. He was, a, he was a boy when he became king. And for 52 years, Manasseh led Judah, as the Bible tells us, he led Judah astray to do more evil than the nations God destroyed before Israel when he gave them the land. Now, you guys know the, 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 the backstory about the Canaanites. There were people of just such gross worship practices, horrible immorality. You, you, we've talked about this. The, the, the Bible says the land vomited them out for their wickedness, and Manasseh is trying to make Israel worse than that. I mean, the stuff we're told about this king just curls your blood. He burned his child alive in a worship ritual to a false god. He openly promoted witchcraft in the land. He built altars and images to Baal, the false god Baal, and his goddess consort Asherah. He built altars and images to Baal and Asherah, and in fact, he built altars and images to all the hosts of heaven. Let's worship the sun, the moon, the constellations, and he put those altars and images in the temple, in the holy place where the living God had his presence. We are told Manasseh filled Jerusalem with blood. He was a horrible king. And toward the end of his reign, in chapter 21, there, there is a fearful pronouncement of judgment on this southern kingdom. Well, Josiah is six years old when Manasseh, his grandfather, dies. And his father, a king named Ammon, is every bit as evil as Manasseh. He lasts only two years before he's assassinated. And so strangely, uh, this little guy, eight years old, he becomes king. And eight-year-old young King Josiah, it's very strange. He takes as his model for his kingship as an eight-year-old boy, certainly not Manasseh, his grandfather, not even his great-grandfather Hezekiah. He takes as his model for his kingship his first royal ancestor, a king named David. You know him well. He, he serves the Lord like David. Well, some years have gone on, 16 years in fact, and he is now a 26-year-old king, as our story opens, and he is uh, wanting to repair uh, God's temple, which has been desecrated and is decaying quite a lot. So they're busy doing these repairs, and then you, you heard the shock. Sometime during the renovations, this scroll is discovered, and it is almost a certainty that this scroll is the scroll of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, particularly toward the end of Deuteronomy, with its very dark prophecies given by Moses that in days to come, Israel is going to apostatize. They're going to depart from the living God and commit whoredom, commit harlotry, act like prostitutes with all the gods of the nations, and there are these ear-tingling curses in Deuteronomy 28, stuff that just makes your, 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 your cheeks burn as God announces what he will do to a people who are unfaithful to him in the future. Well, Josiah reads this, and he is just seriously shaken up as a 26-year-old king, and he just starts bawling and he tears his clothes, and you see there he desperately goes and seeks prophetic guidance. He realizes, I am living in what Moses prophesied, and he is told the sobering news, nothing's going to stop this disaster that God is bringing. It's too late, and yet for his humility, he is told, as he humbled himself before the word, he is told he's going to die in peace, and you know, for us as North Americans, like, good, there's your ticket to personal happiness. Just go chill, eat, drink, and be merry, Josiah. It's all going to burn after you're gone. It's all, it's all fine. That is not what we see. We see instead a really quite astonishing explosion of holy zeal. So we have the shock. Now I'd like to just focus for a moment on Josiah's reforms, his reforms. Uh, 
We didn't read this at the beginning of chapter 23, but basically this is what happens. He gathers the entire nation together, and he has the whole nation make a covenant to walk before the Lord. He says, we are going to walk before God. We are going to keep the Torah, the law of Moses. And everybody signs on. They're like, we're in. And then Josiah just goes on this rampage through the land. And it's interesting, he goes on this rampage through the southern kingdom. He also goes on a rampage through the former northern kingdom. He starts in Jerusalem by cleansing the temple. He just gets rid of all the various furniture and and, uh, images of, of false worship. Then he goes out and he deposes all of these priests who serve the false gods on Judah's high places. When you see high places in the Bible, these were sites of idolatry. There were places where people go up on kind of high places and they'd offer, you know, sacrifices to these false gods. He purges the sexual immorality that's associated with idol worship. All these cult prostitutes, they're gone. He desecrates the high places, including one in verse 10 of chapter 23 called Topheth, which is where people would burn their children as offerings, burn them alive as offerings to the horrible god Molech. He goes up on the roof of the royal chamber and gets rid of the altars up there to the hosts of heaven. Then he goes all the way north to the northern kingdom to a place called Bethel, and he smashes that high place that was built at the founding of the northern kingdom where they built a golden calf, and they set up this shrine as a rival to the temple in Jerusalem. He goes further. He goes all the way to the former capital city, Samaria, in the northern kingdom, and he cleanses that. And then he kind of turns positive. He he gets Israel together. They celebrate the Passover. They remember who they are. They were told it was the best Passover since the time of the judges. We, We read here he drives out witchcraft. I mean, this kid cleans house, we are told, in 2325, according to all the Torah. I mean, this is such moral purpose. God has said, this is how it's to be. That's how it's going to be. We are cleaning up. It's kind of awesome. You don't see that kind of zeal maybe anywhere else in the Old Testament. And yet, verse 26 tells us it is not enough. Because there are still these two massive problems. One problem in this kingdom is that God's justice is not satisfied. God's justice is not satisfied. This thorough house cleaning, burning all the images, wrecking all the altars, desecrating the high places, getting rid of the false priests, this house cleaning, it's like trying to scrub water into a garment that has a deep stain in it. This house cleaning, according to the law of Moses, it is not going to blot out the stain of centuries of idolatry and immorality and shedding innocent blood. You know, God told Abraham way, way back in the day, he told Abraham, there's going to come a time when the iniquity, the sin, the evil of the Amorites, that's another name for the Canaanites, there's going to come a point when there's going to be a tipping point in their iniquity, and then there'll be judgment. And now, the iniquity of Israel's re-Canaanitization, I mean, they're, they're trying to like go back and, and do worse than those nations before they owned the land. And, and God says, the cup is full. It's just brim full. I have heard the shrieks of your infants in the fires of Molech. I've seen your sexual orgies at the shrines of these false gods. 
He's watched his bride turn to a thousand lovers. You ever been betrayed like this? He's watched his bride turn to a thousand lovers as if these false gods made of wood and stone are the ones who give Israel security, as if they're the ones who make her prosper. God has watched the blood of helpless, innocent people running in the streets of his holy city. Enough. Enough. No more. It's crazy, and you read through this, these stories, God has been patient, God has been kind, God has forgiven, God has waited, God has called to the prophets. Peter Lightheart says it very well. He says, when you read 2 Kings, the issue is not why judgment's finally coming. The thing you just can't figure out is why has it taken so long for judgment to come. That's the first problem. God's justice, it's just not satisfied. And there's another problem. And that problem is that Israel's heart has not changed. You know, Josiah's cleaning up the externals, and it's important, but he has not circumcised Israel's heart. Their hearts have not changed. The, this, these temporary reforms, you know, they will not outlive his administration. They will not outlive him. That heart of stone in Israel, it remains the same. It's interesting, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, writing in the days of Josiah, says this. He says, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their ashram beside every green tree and on the high hills. That's the reality of Israel's heart. And no amount of adhering to Torah, no matter how scrupulous you follow the law of Moses at this point, none of it can change that impenetrable reality at the heart of things. And that failure is the point of this story. I love the way Peter Lightheart says this. He says, quote, Josiah points to Jesus largely because of his failure. By showing that the law is weak and by leaving Israel desperately hoping for a greater king to perform what the law cannot accomplish. Let me say now something about Israel, uh, Josiah's hope and ours. We've seen his shock, his reforms. Now let's just talk for a moment about Josiah's hope. Our world makes it feel as if personal happiness can be a totally attained without God, right? That's the, that's the thing. You can maybe attain it with God, but you can also totally become personally happy without God. But the problem that we eventually confront is we think about, you know, just go out and be happy. You don't need to worry about God. You don't need to worry about any kind of higher kingdom or higher law or, you know, some order you're supposed to conform to. Just go out and do whatever makes you happy. The problem we realize eventually in pursuing that is that happiness without goodness is a farce. In fact, it can be un unbelievably cruel. The Nazis were happy. The slave owners in the South were happy. People committing genocide in Rwanda, they enjoyed this. Happiness without goodness is a mockery. And that is the great truth in many radical movements of our time on the right and the left politically. The radicals understand something, that happiness achieved by destroying what is good Happiness achieved by destroying other people. Building your grand citadels of personal happiness on the backs of the oppressed is wicked. 
Which is why we find ourselves now in a society that is caught between moral self-loathing and this kind of externalized moral outrage, a kind of deep moral discomfort with ourselves and this constant need to demonize somebody or something. Morality will always challenge happiness. Morality will make you angry. Morality will make you feel shame. Morality will make you feel guilt. It will challenge your happiness. But Josiah's story tells us something else, and this is the point of the message and the point of his story. Josiah's story tells us that morality without Jesus will crush you. Morality without Jesus will crush you. We all know in our guts, whatever stupid stuff we say in our heads, we know in our guts evil must not go unanswered. If you are a person who can watch the evils of the world and be like, oh, well, you know, stuff happens. You, you are morally cauterized. Evil must not go unanswered. Evil deserves judgment. But the question that Josiah's story presses upon us is who can bear the weight of that judgment? Who can bear the weight of all of God's judgment, all of God's holy wrath and curse on all the evil, all of your sin, all of it, the stuff you don't even see, all of my sin, the stuff I don't even see, and compound that by the sin of the world. Who can take that stain, that curse, that judgment that we deserve and take it away? Who can do it? Josiah didn't do it. And there's also that second gnawing question as we think about morality without Jesus. If we are the source of the problem, you know, you all sit here, I sit here, we think we're basically pretty good people. Look, we are the problem with the world. The fact that there are more extreme sinners than us, we are all in this sin thing. The polluted streams that make the world so nasty are just always gushing up from inside of us human beings. We are the problem. And if we are the polluted stream, how is the polluted fountain ever going to purify itself? How is the p- polluted fountain going to ever produce enough fresh water to drive out the pollution? It's, it's, it's insane to even think it. And we can pretend in our moralistic age that it's actually those people who are polluted and somehow we're not. We all know where that leads. It just leads to more evils and injustices and oppression. Morality without Jesus will destroy you. Who can bear the weight of God's wrath upon all the sin? And what can purify the polluted fountain? And Josiah's story cries out for one who can take away the sin of the world. Beloved, you know this well. This is the gospel for centuries now in Josiah's time. The demands of God's good law have been focused on Israel. They've been concentrated on Israel. God did not give his law to the nations. He gave his law to Israel. And it's like he's put a a laser beam focus, a laser magnifier on Israel. This is what God's holiness demands. And so for all the centuries of Israel's existence, there's been this pressure of guilt mounting, more and more sin. The law just shows more and more sin. And there is no answer in Torah. If breaking the law is the problem, you can't throw more law at the problem, can you? You think you need more rules? You think you need more regulations? You think you need more enforcement? Is that going to change anything? The law only shows more sin. And that's why Paul says those beautiful words, but God. Because one day, all of that holy wrath of God's infinite goodness that has been built up over millennia against the horrors of human sin, the promise ever since the Garden of Eden has been that God is going to take that pent-up 
enormous, holy, infinite wrath, that righteous, good wrath against the horrors of sin, and he is going to spend it upon his righteous son. He's going to spend it upon one who is the true Israel, who stands in the place of us sinners, and he answers without exception every demand of God's law and every penalty of God's law. There is not one thing left undone that is required. There is not one curse left unanswered that is demanded by God's justice. He satisfies all of it as he stands in our place. And the good news promised in the Old Testament revealed to us now is on the other side of that infinite, inferno of God's judgment, something we literally, we read the cross story, we do not understand. We, you know, we create these things, these crosses to remind us, but they're just so sanitized. The wrath of God against the sins of the world poured out upon his son. On the other side of that inferno, how can we even imagine what it was to endure that? We are told the other side will be peace. He has paid the debt. It's finished. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. In Jesus, behold, you are very good. You are very good. But it will not just be peace, it will be power. Because having broken sin's power to destroy us, having answered God's wrath in full, this son, he will not leave us in the pollution of the sin. He will not leave our hearts uncircumcised. He will put his very own spirit in us, and the first mighty work of that spirit will be to shed abroad the love of God in our hearts to assure us, as only the power of God can, we are loved by the Father, even as the firstborn son of God is loved. You cannot believe that apart from the Holy Spirit. You cannot believe that unless God puts the spirit of his own son, Jesus, in your heart, crying out, Abba, my Father. And it is by filling us with that peace and joy in believing the love of God for us, the spirit will omnipotently win over all of our affections from the very bottom of our hearts. And I will find myself in a place where, consumed by the love of God, I love God. That work of the Spirit will do what the law cannot do. The law can show me my sin. The Spirit can make me love the Lord because he has first loved me. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it so brilliantly in my favorite two verses in all the Bible in Romans 8, what Torah could not do because of the weakness of our flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering, he condemned and broke the power of sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of Torah might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit of the Son of God. Now, can I ask you something? Does your Christian faith suddenly seem a little more relevant to real life? This is water that is found in no ideology, philosophy, or religion under the sun. Apart from Jesus Christ, the evils of the world, including those you find in your own soul, they will mock your quest for happiness. They will if you're a morally serious person at all. Meanwhile, your attempts to fix yourself or to fix the world, they will mock your weakness. But in Jesus, we have both the peace of full forgiveness 
and the power of righteousness. That, by the way, is why the New Testament expects a lot better things of God's people than in Josiah's time, because the writers of the New Testament know that in Christ we have an identity. We are now, by God's free grace, what we could never earn by the works of Torah, and that identity in Jesus, knowing where we stand with God through Christ, is what enables maturity. You can grow up in a way that Israel could not, because you have not just the law, you have the Spirit. You can grow into who you are because of who you are in Jesus. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we constantly need to be hearing the gospel, even as children of God. You don't need to be told every Sunday just how great you are in yourself. You're a mess. So am I. What we need to hear is who we are as creatures whom God made for himself and whom he has redeemed at the cost of his own son's blood and made his children through his son and given us the spirit of that son. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Can I ask you parents something as we wrap up? This question has applications way beyond parenting. But God really drove a... God really drove a knife through my heart this week as I was thinking about this message. You know, I'm a Torah guy. I get it. Do you tell your children that Christ died for their sins as often as you tell them their sins? Are you a Christian as a parent? Does that make any difference in the way you parent? Do you tell your children about this righteous one living and dying for the unrighteous? Do you actually speak the gospel to them? Do you tell your children of the Father's unchanging love for them and His Spirit's power within them when they feel their weakness? And do you, do you treat them like you believe that He is their God and they are His people? And can I ask you something, brothers and sisters? Because I am so tired of dealing with this as I pick up the pieces in families and as I have dealt with this even under my own roof. If you do not minister the gospel to your children like that, do you really think that all of your walls and your fences and your regulations and your monitoring and your moralisms are going to change their hearts? Do you think you have the power through regulation to do to your own personal Torah program what only the love of God in Christ can do? Do you pray that God will shed abroad his love in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and do you seek to be an agent of that Spirit's gracious work? Peter Lightheart says, only through the work of the Spirit does it become possible for sinners to fulfill the righteousness of the law? Why? Because only through the Spirit does a person become drunk with joy and love for God. If we or anyone we are ministering to have little love for righteousness, it is always because at some level we know little of the love of God. And Jesus came to change exactly that. Amen?
So shed it abroad in our hearts, Lord, we pray in Jesus' good name.